Now let us turn together to the book of the Acts of the Apostles as usual on these Sunday mornings and to read the short section from Acts chapter 17 verses 22 to 31 only. You will recall that last Sunday morning we dealt with the whole of the passage from verse 16 to verse 34 as an overview of Paul's ministry in Athens, and we are turning particularly to his great address to the Athenians on Mars Hill or on the Areopagus from verse 22 to 31. Acts chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. May God once more bless the reading of his inspired word to our understanding. Now, as I said to you last Sunday morning, when we began together to look at this enthralling passage of Scripture, there is something deeply enchanting and even exciting about the description of Paul, the great Christian apostle, standing in Athens in the midst of the glories of ancient Greece. I remind you again this morning that Athens was one of the greatest and most famous cities of the ancient world, and still something of that fame held from antiquity itself belongs to that same city today. Now, last Sunday, as we overviewed this great passage of God's word, you will recall that we contemplated three things. What Paul saw in that city that was so wholly given over to pagan idolatry, and what Paul said in that situation in which he found himself, and finally, what God did by his power and grace in drawing not all, 
but only a few to faith in Christ in that city of philosophy and learning and the center of arts and architecture, but where life had become so deeply trivialized. There were only a few who believed the herald of the gospel. Now, as Paul was in that city, no ordinary Jew could have so discerned the spirit of that pagan place as the apostle did, nor could any ordinary Jew have ever excited so much interest among the learned men and sages of Athens to justify their calling a special meeting of the council of the Areopagus to hear in detail this new teaching that was brought by the lips of this man to their ears. And what stands before us this morning, beloved, is the address that Paul gave in verses 22 to 31. It's quite unique in the whole of the book of Acts and, in a sense, in the whole of Scripture, apart from anything else, for its grace and the intellectual sequence of Paul's thought and the grandeur of his conceptions and the range and stately march of eloquent words. It stands alone among all the recorded sermons of the Apostle Paul. It's quite unique, and we may well believe, but it is so recorded because this address, perhaps more than any other, was very probably the result of deep thought and long preparation as Paul realized he stood before possibly the greatest audience that he would ever address in the whole of his ministry, the council of the Areopagus. Now, as you and I read it together this morning, it takes less than two minutes to read what Paul said. And evidently, like so many of the sermons in the book of Acts, it's a concise paraphrase of a much longer exposition and sermon and address. And Paul, we realize, must have filled out this outline quite considerably. But what is the point of coming to it this morning and looking at it again for a second time but in much more detail? And the answer is this, that, beloved, here is not only a mighty message to the Athenians, but it is a mighty God-centered message to us as we are here in Westminster Church this morning. And so there are two things that I would have hoped to deal with this morning, and I realize that it will be simply impossible to come to the second one. The first is what Paul said to the Athenians, and the second one is what Paul is continuing to say to us in that address. It reveals the richness of the apostle's mind. It shows to us the sympathy that enabled him to easily relate to all sorts and conditions of men. But so rich is this address that I, I'm going to have to leave till next Sunday the subject of what this address is really saying to us. And so I want to take you into the first of these things this morning. What Paul said to the Athenians 
in verses 22 to 31, and it will be exceedingly helpful today if you have the scriptures open before you as you follow the preaching and are able to refer to the verses that I seek to highlight. Now let me take a moment, first of all, to remind you of the background out of which this great sermon of Paul was first delivered. He was in the city of Athens, you remember, and we saw that the city of Athens was characterized by three things. There was superstition there, and superstition such as the apostle had never before encountered in all of his life. As he passed through its streets, you remember, tourist-like, he surveyed everywhere the monuments to their pagan religion. So that in verse 16, as we saw last Sunday morning, Luke uses a word to describe what Paul saw in that city, but occurs nowhere else in the scriptures. The word katidolos, literally translated, swamped with idols. And as the Romans said around the time that Paul ministered, it was indeed easier to meet a god in the streets of Athens than it was to meet a man. In the main street of Athens alone, there were no less than 3,000 statues to Greek gods and goddesses. And everywhere Paul looked, there were shrines and temples and altars and statues everywhere throughout all of Athens. The superstition was abounding. Yet the remarkable thing is that God, the true God, in spite of all this religion, was never in their thoughts at all. And the second thing you remember was the speculation that he encountered there in verses 18 through 20. The two schools of philosophers, the Epicureans, who were basically atheists and believed in pleasure, and the Stoics, who were really pantheists, who said like the New Age movement is saying around us today, God is in everything. He's in the rocks and the trees and the seas and the clouds above us. He's diffused as the great spirit who is moving in everything created. And the tragedy of both of these great schools of thinking is that they are degenerated into mere cleverness of words. And their philosophy was no longer anymore a serious quest for the real meaning and purpose of life. It was an argument about words and concepts and ideas. And this is why they were so intent in Athens to learn anything new. And their triviality is shown by the reaction to the Apostle Paul. You remember that they called him a babbler. What will this babbler say? they asked as they listened to his teaching. And the word in Greek literally means a seed picker. The word is spermologos. And the Greeks used it to describe a little sparrow in the gutter that hopped down and picked up this seed and this crumb over here and this piece of bread over here. And the thought you see behind the Apostle Paul is here is a man who has no original ideas of his own, but he goes around picking up this bit of information and this idea from here and this thought from over there. 
until he has a rag bag in his mind of other people's thoughts and ideas. And others described him contemptuously as an advocate of foreign gods. And there was, you see, speculation. And you remember the third thing that was there was sensation. They were determined to hear everything that was new, the very latest, which must, in their estimation, be the greatest. And there was a love of novelty there, to the point, as we saw, where life had become utterly trivialized. And the quest was no longer, beloved, for what is true, but for what is new. And we see the same spirit, do we not, writ large over our own world and North American society today. And what a tragedy in this great city that was once the center of arts and philosophy and learning and all the great disciplines of man's mind. A city in which the true God was utterly and entirely unknown. Now what a scene. How it might have intimidated the great Apostle Paul as he stood before the learned men and the sages of the Council of the Areopagus. What a temptation to him to compromise his message and to reduce it down to something that simply pleased and tickled the ears of men. Instead, what do we see him doing? He brought before them God, the living, eternal almighty, self-sufficient God as a personal and living reality before their attention. And he brought them as men and women who stood deeply accountable to that God of heaven and earth. It was a masterful address, beginning, as we shall see, with the doctrine of creation and ending in verse 31 with the doctrine of the last judgment. And in all of this masterful address, he focused their attention upon the three most fundamental questions of life that are still for you and me today, the same burning issues of life. Who is God? What am I? What is the meaning and the significance of human life? Now let's deal with these three questions this morning from this great and masterful address. Who is God? Now that's where the apostle began in verses 22 through 25. Then Paul stood up, you read, in that council of the Areopagus, the cream of the intellectuals in the Greek city of Athens, the wisest and sagest men, philosophers, and those associated with them. And he began by saying to them, I see that in every way you are religious, but as I passed through your streets, I saw an altar with the inscription written upon it, Agnostotheo to the unknown God. And he who is unknown to you, I am about to declare. Now as you look at the way in which he answered this question, who is God, you are at once struck, I'm sure, by the difference in the form of his address 
from mostly anything we've read previously in our studies of the book of Acts, very different in style from what he preached in the Jewish synagogues to the Jews who had a much fuller and more accurate knowledge of God by revelation of himself. And here Paul comes down to the lowest point and form of truth that he might reach with his arrow the Athenian conscience. And he had only done this once before, you remember, in Acts 14, when he went to the barbarians of Lyconia in the city of Lystra and spoke to them of the God who sent fruitful seasons from heaven and refreshing rain that he might bear witness of his goodness to men that they in turn might seek him. But Paul begins, you notice, with his habitual courtesy. I perceive that you are very devout, very religious, And as I passed through your streets, I saw this altar to the unknown God. Now, isn't it interesting that the apostle takes his text for this powerful sermon, not from scripture, of which the Athenians were totally ignorant, but from an altar inscription with which they were thoroughly familiar. And in doing so, he laid hold of the only object in that idle, crowded city that showed the humbling fact about themselves and the gods whom they professed to worship. Do you see that? To the unknown God. It revealed all that Paul needed to know about these pagan Athenians and where they stood. It told the whole tale about them, that all else around them was deception and the triumph of Satan's lie. All these other statues to Apollo and to Diana and to Esculapius, the god of healing, and to Athena, the great goddess worshipped in the Greek Parthenon. All else was lies. Here alone was the truth about their spiritual condition. They did not know the true God. And amid the innumerable temples and shrines to the Athenian gods, Paul saw confusion and deception concerning the nature and the unity of the one true God. Now, what does he do? He begins with that great text. Look how he unpacks it and unfolds it to the unknown God. He is, my dear friends, he says to the Athenians, not unknown, but knowable to you. Because he is, for one thing, the creator. Do you read that with me in verse 24? The God who made the world and everything in it. Creation. The fact that was not owned or recognized either by Epicureans who said the world came into being as the modern evolutionists say today. There's nothing new in the world. It came into being by the fortuitous and random gathering together of atoms. And God, if he he exists, said the Epicureans, is too distant from this world to ever be interested in what goes on here. 
and the, and the Stoics, by contrast, thought that the world had come into being by the ever-recurring cycle of regeneration and renewal. And what does Paul do? He brings before them the God who made the world and everything in it. The act of a personal God, not multitudes of deities or multitudes and conglomerations of atoms coming together by random chance, but the act of a living and personal God. And then he tells them that this God is supreme and almighty in verse 24 at the end. The Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, he is not a God who rests in apathy, distant from his creatures as the philosophers taught, unrelated to all human activity upon the earth. Nor is he merely, as the Stoics thought, the impersonal force that is wound up in the goings-on of nature, in the rolling waves of the sea, and the changing scapes of the sky and the blowing of the wind, and the rocks and the trees. Instead, he is the supreme ruler of heaven and also of earth, and distinct and separate from it. He is the divine ruler of everything. And probably at this point, Paul quoted from the Old Testament scriptures, perhaps in First Chronicles 29 verse 11, where we read that yours, O Lord, is the greatness and yours is the power and glory and victory and majesty because all in heaven and earth are yours. And Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heaven, writes the psalmist. He does whatever he pleases. Or Daniel 4, verse 35, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and upon the earth. No one can restrain his hand. He is supreme and almighty. And the third thing that he tells us about God is that he is self-sufficient at the end of verse 24. He does not live in temples made by human hands. And you see, we need to remember that in Athens, the temples were the glory of Athens. Paul had seen them everywhere, on every street corner, in every marketplace. And he had seen the multitude of sacrifices that were being offered before the heathen gods. And these men of Athens supposed that temples were not unworthy abodes for the deity. And Paul told them, as he had remembered Stephen, told the Jews years before in that outstanding address by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that nothing less than heaven's infinite dome could befit so sublime a majesty as the supreme and almighty God of heaven and earth. And even they are not sufficient to contain him. And they thought that they could propitiate the deity by their gifts and sacrifices, by the offerings of men's hands. And he told them that God needed these, but not at all. 
and that their true blessedness, if only they realized it, consisted not in seeking to give to him, but with broken and thankful and contrite spirit and empty outstretched hands, they should seek him who had revealed himself in the glories of creation. Now do you see what he's saying to them? Who is God? He is not limited, says Paul, to human sanctuaries. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he is the God who gives life and health and all things to all men. And to assume that man can give anything to this God, that he needs anything from us, is simply absurd. Now you notice he comes to the second great theme of this sermon. What am I? What am I? And he tells us, you notice, in verses 26 to 28, that it is God who from one, in the Greek, one man in our translation, made every nation under heaven. And he appointed, says Paul, the very places that they would occupy and the very seasons that would govern, govern their changeful lives. And so, you see, the apostle is dealing with the second and fundamental and vital and burning question that still faces you and me today. Who am I? How am I to understand myself and my place and position in this oh-so-confusing world in which we live? And in doing so, he strikes a deadly blow at the well-known pride of the Athenians who thought themselves, you see, a superior race of men. A thought, incidentally, that is by no means foreign to us today. As you remember, even in the years of the Second World War, the teaching of Hitler's Nazism that a superior race now tramped upon the earth and marched to endless victory in the Third Reich that would last a thousand years. And what I see in our own society today is so remarkably similar, though not so obtrusive as Hitler's Nazism, that we are the people here in this American race. And Paul uncovers, beloved, the doctrine of man and answers the question, what am I really like? And do you notice what he tells us? There are really two things, three things, I should say. Man's origin. From one God created every man, verse 26. Now you see, in one stately blow, he demolishes the pride of the Athenians. But there is no superiority of race in this world, then or now, beloved. And as Shakespeare put it in one of his plays, Imperial Caesar, dead and turned to clay, may stop a hole to keep the world away. Where is this man, the great Caesar, that ruled the empire of Rome when he is turned into dust? A man may come and take a handful of his clay and stop a hole in the wall of his house, but the wind might not blow through it. 
They thought themselves a race apart, sprung from the earth, different not only from the barbarians, but all the rest of the race of Greeks. And Paul comes and crushes their self-exalting vanity by revealing that God made of one man, Adam, all the nations of the earth. But do you know the second thing that he tells us about himself? That God, the sovereign God, has appointed seasons determined for man's existence upon the earth, that they should inhabit it. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Verse 26, in the middle and at the end. Now do you see the amazing thing that he's telling them here? a veritable philosophy of history, a way to understand what is happening in our human lives, what life is all about. You see, not only has he made man of one origin, but all nations, says Paul, are cared for and superintended by God's almighty hand. In other words, God controls man's earthly destiny. Because he determines, says Paul, the times that are set for them. Now that doesn't mean the times of rain and harvest and the good things the earth brings forth. What it means is that God determines the rise of one nation and the fall of another. The ascendancy of one great kingdom and its fall into demise and decline again. In other words, it is God who determines how long any nation shall exist upon the earth, the time of its rise, the length of its duration, its decline and fall into obscurity again. No nation, he says, decides these things by itself. God does. And in these days, when we are concerned about the Middle East, you remember, and the aggression of one great nation in that part of the world against another smaller one, isn't it comforting to know that no nation decides its own fate or destiny or the length of its aggression, but God holds all these set times and seasons under his own almighty control. And so all through history we have seen the rise of nations and kingdoms and their fall. No nation decides these things. God does. But not only so, look you, the very territorial boundaries that they occupy are fixed by God. The exact places, says Paul, in which they should live have been determined by God. He's not only in control of history, beloved, he's in control of geography as well. Not only does God, in other words, decide how long a nation shall remain on the map, but how far its power will reach before it tumbles into inevitable decline. You see, the aggressor stretches forth his hand and says, this shall be mine with all its riches and wealth, and God allows it for a season that he has appointed for his own great purposes. 
Now, do you see what Paul is saying as he discourses on the nature of man? It's an amazing picture of man's smallness and God's greatness. And this is what the true preaching of the gospel always does. What an affront to the pride of the Athenians who thought themselves so very great and so very clever who in the course of this address were made to see themselves so very small. And the gospel, beloved, makes us small and humbles us in whatever area it deals with us, and especially in the doctrine of man, that we might become childlike, that we may enter the narrow gate, and walk in the straight way that leads to life. But Paul has not finished with man, for look you, he says finally, but the sole source of man's continued life and activity and very existence on the earth belong to the hand of God also. Verse 28. Human life in its origination, human life in its continuance, Human life in its richness is all from him. As someone said to me recently, the vice president of the United States is only a heartbeat away from the presidency at any moment. And you and I need to think about that. So all, you see, are under God's hand, nations and individuals alike, with special favors delivered to each, that, and this is Paul's last point, men may seek after the true God. Verse 27. Now do you see what he has brought to their attention? Why has God revealed himself thus in history? In the midst of a divine and tangled web, of human history and human destiny in the various conditions of the nations, some rising up to power, others setting down into decline, some being planted, others being rooted up. What is God's purpose? To lead men to seek after God. Listen, sometimes it comes to us by a whisper in the events of our lives and in the events of history. Sometimes it comes to us in a loud shout that awakens us from the sleep of death that we should seek after God. Why are the nations in convulsion? Why is there warfare and strife? Why is there death in my family? Why is there disaster in my business? But happily we might grope after the living God who in the panoply of heaven and earth and in the events of human history, tangled up as they appear to be, we might be driven to seek him who is not far, he says, from any one of us. And all that God does in human history and geography in this world is with the basic design of bringing men to himself. Do you see what Paul has said? Who is God? Who am I? Now the third thing, as I close, 
is what is the meaning of life in verses 29 through 31. And he reminds them that even their own poets have shown the folly of their much-vaunted idolatry in which they find the meaning and significance of life. What were all these innumerable temples and shrines and altars and sacrifices in the streets of Athens but an expression of their understanding of the meaning of life? And Paul says to them that even their own poets have shown the folly of such idolatry. For if man is God's offspring, as the poet Aratus taught them, how can you think of God like an idol of gold or silver or stone or marble or wood? We read in the book of Isaiah this morning as our Old Testament scripture reading, the folly of bowing down before such a thing that can neither speak nor think nor see nor talk. We ought not so to think, he says in verse 29, that a lifeless stock could even be or represent the God who made man and all things beside. But you notice he then says to them, but the God who was thus shamefully misrepresented in the times of men's past ignorance will no longer overlook this delinquency. Does it mean he overlooked it in the past? No. But what it means is that with great and divine forbearance and mercy, he did not call in, as it were, the shots. And he left men in their darkness and their idolatry. And with long-suffering, he allowed their ignorance to be. But you see, this time of ignorance is no longer to be passed over. They are guilty sinners who should have seen in the panoply of God's works in heaven and on the earth the glory of his unique being in the events of history and their own lives, some indication of their need to seek after God. And they are guilty men and women in Athens who are summoned now to repent and get right with God. Now do you see what Paul is doing? It is a death blow for the self-indulgent Epicureans who thought that pleasure was the great purpose of life. It was a death blow to the self-righteous Stoics who thought that their own uprightness was enough to make them right with God and to all the careless and proud in Athens. Paul brought this solemn message that they are going to stand one day in the presence of Almighty God and answer to him. Now do you see what Paul does? He brings before them in those verses the resurrection of Jesus as proof of that coming judgment. For not only will there be a literal resurrection of men to life again, but, says Paul, there has been one already. And this, indubitably, is a forerunner of the day when universally man's spirit will be reunited with his body 
in the judgment day of God, a day when God will judge the world by that man who died in mortal weakness, but who was raised by divine power from among the dead, and into whose hand all judgment is now committed. And thus he ended his masterful address. Now let me in just a moment or two summarize what I've been teaching you. Such was Paul's preaching. Such was Paul's gospel dealing with the fundamental questions of life as the gospel always does, whether it's in the Jewish synagogue, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's on the hill of the Areopagus, dealing with the philosophers and wise men of this world. Who is God? What am I? What is the meaning and significance of life? And here is this herald of the gospel in Athens, setting before them the testimony of Jesus, yet how little heeded it was. Rich in its testimony to God's forbearance over man's ignorance, his desire that the witness to himself in nature and history and geography and man's own being might draw men from idolatry to seek after him a gospel crushing to human pride as it sets before them the all-sufficiency of Jesus and the inevitability of judgment. But to them, it was merely a new sensation, a novelty to tickle their ears, a shift in the constantly changing kaleidoscopic pictures of new ideas in Athens. Just something else that is new. But to Paul, it wasn't that. It was of tremendous, burning urgency. My dear friend, let me ask you this morning, is it that to you, as you have listened to this exposition? Or is the gospel you have heard degraded into just another new thing to tickle your imagination? So that just as Jesus and the resurrection became to the Athenians the latest addition to their pantheon of gods and goddesses and their heathen vanities, is it that way for you? You know, as I consider this sermon and all the content of it and all the powerfulness of its application, the only intelligible explanation for men refusing the herald of the gospel is the inveterate antagonism of the human heart to God. That even when he is waiting upon them, and pleading with them, and speaking to them in accents of divine and richest mercy, they will not hear. And I say to you as I close this morning, bow down, bow down, proud man or woman, to him who in love sent his only Son into this world, that we might have life through him, that in that great judgment day of God, we may not stand with trembling fear 
as those who are outside of Christ and condemned to eternal perdition, but those who know with inward peace, with marvelous joy, that he has died for our sins, even ours, that we have come to know who is God, who am I, what is the real meaning of human life upon the earth. For else, listen, we be but mere mockers and triflers as the Athenians so evidently were. Which is it to you? Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we do earnestly ask that thou wilt write these things upon our minds and hearts and give to us the ability to bring a truly comprehensive message of the gospel's glory to pagan men and women of our day and age. And may God so bless that testimony that as in ancient Athens there will be at least some who believed and followed the apostolic teaching unto life. For Jesus' sake, amen.